so we move right along to Cleomenes, the last great king of Sparta. Here we are in the sunset of the Greek age. And you can tell it's the sunset because even their best men do not succeed in bringing back the Greek virtues, particularly the Spartan ones. So Aegis dies in 241 BC. We think that Cleomenes is about 19 at that point. So he's young enough that he probably wasn't tracking politically with what was going on in the town. I think he's a little younger than this, but most scholars disagree with me. So they say he was born between 265 and 260. If he was born in 260, then he's 19 when Aegis dies. However, he has so much curiosity about the reforms of Aegis that I feel like if you had been a teenager when these reforms were going into effect, wouldn't it be changing the way you did the agoge and the way you trained and the way you learned? And so he wouldn't have to have as many questions. But anyway, I don't know. We'll leave that to the scholars. He's young though, right? In Ancient Greece, generally, men didn't get married until their 20s, sometimes even their late 20s. The idea would they would be established, have a little bit more of a family. So he's too young to get married, Plutarch says. So, okay, teenage men don't get married. And he's actually married off to Leonidas' daughter, the current bad king who had Aegis killed. And you could blame the E4s, I guess, more than Leonidas. But in spite of the age gap which might be as much as like 19 and 30, 19 and 35. I don't know. It's not too bad. She didn't want to marry him at first. He didn't want to marry her at first. But after they were married, they figured it out and they actually grew to love each other. She became a good and affectionate wife. And we'll see later, he will be very sad upon her death. And he became passionately fond of her. She was also the sister-in-law of Aegis because she had been married to Archidemus, Aegis's brother. Yeah, complicated family affair here. But ultimately, as the sister-in-law of Aegis, she had lots of stories. And as older than Cleomenes, she certainly had much more of the inside scoop on what was going on. So Cleomenes grew up listening, or finished his second and third decade, listening to these stories, these stories about Aegis, all before he's going to be king, but knowing that he's next in line to be king. Cleomenes has a similar nature to Aegis, but he's not scrupulous, reverent, religious, that was the word as it's translated from Greek, or gentle. Those are two things he lacks. And we're going to see that it can still be his undoing, but I think Plutarch sees these as a bonus, is that certain times call for certain personalities. And Aegis's time just didn't call for gentleness, and he was too gentle. Well, Cleomenes will not be making that mistake. This is one of the closing thoughts Plutarch has on one paragraph. He thought it a most excellent thing to rule over willing subjects, but a good thing also to subdue such subjects as were disobedient and to force them towards the better goal. That is tough. That is harder. For us in the modern day who believe so strongly in freedom to believe that coercion towards even towards the good is actually a good. So he looks around though at his fellow citizens and he thinks, 
citizens have been lulled to sleep by idleness and pleasure, which makes me think that Aegis's attempts at reform were probably more talked about than ever done. We saw the two steps, right? The first step was try to do it legally. The second step was Uncle Agesilaus steps in and is like, oh, let's do this piecemeal. And then at that point, he's called back to war and Agesilaus has ruined things. Yeah, so I guess it was something that was more talked about than done. Because when he looks around, he sees citizens who have been lulled to sleep by idleness and pleasure. The public interest is neglected and every man is eagerly intent upon his own private gain. This is a distinction that we don't think of as much anymore. That public service ought to come first as a priority over public gain. As a matter of fact, it's a rhetorical trope that is said about all of our politicians, but most of us don't care or don't want to believe it. And that's interesting because we've already left public service to the politicians. We think of ourselves when we're private citizens as entirely private citizens. That's a bright golden line between public and private that I honestly just think is easy to have in your head, but is much harder to say exists in reality. And we're finding it in these free speech conversations and what can you talk about and what can't you talk about and what can you believe and what can't you believe? Because the line for both of those, once drawn publicly, the Overton window, if you will, has a great deal of influence over what we are even able to debate about, what we're able to talk about, what we're able to consider to be in the public interest. One easy example in America is at least, or maybe in the West in general, is that certain problems ought to have government solve them. That is basically an understood tenet of both left and right in the United States, because when something terrible happens, like COVID, the government is turned to for assistance. Not ourselves, not our fellow Americans, not society, not your neighborhood, nothing like that. We need a whole solution immediately from the largest organ of power in the state. Where are we with Cleomenes? We have this public-private distinction that he wants to collapse, even though it's not even as strong as it is nowadays. So he thinks it's way, way too weak. Everyone goes after his own private gain. And most Americans, most Westerners would say, yes, that's exactly how the public gains. Everyone going after his private gain. I don't think Plutarch thinks that. I don't think Plutarch agrees with us. Anyway, it is said that Cleomenes studied philosophy while he was still a young man because Spyrus of Borysthenes, and don't worry if you haven't heard of that name, I had not before I'd read this life either, had made a voyage to Sparta. And you might think, oh, Spyrus, okay, cool. He's a Stoic, but he's not just any Stoic. He is the student, or a student, of the founder of Stoicism. Zeno of Chitium. Now we have none of their writings left, and we actually know very little about Spyrus. I did some research, but he is actually most famous for being the one who trains this future king. And Plutarch tells us that he increases the fires of his high ambition. But at the same time, we are told, and this is the closest I've seen Plutarch give his opinion on Stoicism, Alert, this will be an unpopular opinion for those who are huge fans of the modern Stoic movement, but I, for one, 
Love that Plutarch puts his cards down here. He says, For great and impetuous natures, the Stoic doctrines are somewhat misleading and dangerous. Although when they permeate a deep and gentle character, they redound most to its proper good. So if you are prone to anger, it sounds like, or you are ambitious, Stoicism can be bad for you. That's awesome. can be dangerous. But if you are deep and gentle, aka a Pericles, perhaps an Aegis, an Aemilius Paulus, Chemon, Stoicism would be good for such men. So I'm going to go that Marcus Aurelius was a deep and gentle character because he turned out pretty awesome with the Stoicism under the influence thereof. But yeah, it's very interesting to watch. And Plutarch has some other things that he takes up against the Stoics for. He considers himself a Platonist of the Middle Academy, something very close to Cicero. And yeah, I just love that. I want to hear from the Stoics in the crowd. If you think there's anything dangerous or misleading that you found, especially for strong personalities, great and impetuous are the words he uses. I'd love to hear more about it because I'm a little skeptical of the whole modern Stoic movement. I think in general, it's mostly doing good for young men, but it also, it has some excesses that I don't like. But we don't have time for that here because we're talking about Cleomenes and Leonidas dies and Cleomenes takes the throne. He's 24 years old, probably. Remember, we don't really know when he was born, but he comes to the throne as a young king. Sounds like Aegis. It's now 235 BC. Okay, Marcellus and Fabius Maximus are now senators back on the Italian peninsula, but still the most important war for the third century for the Romans is not yet being fought. And he sees the same things he saw when he was a regular citizen. The rich neglect the common interests for their own private pleasures. Cleomenes feels like he's king in name only. King in name only? We saw that in the life of Aegis, where we were told that you're a king in name only if you only give in to the appetites and passions of the people. You're actually their slave. Well, Cleomenes doesn't want to be a slave. He wants to be a king. So he has another friend who knows a lot more about how Aegis's plans worked when Cleomenes was a little tater-tot Spartan. Okay, so this friend starts very happy to tell him about Aegis's plans, but then it's almost as if this friend sees a twinkle in Cleomenes's eye as he's having these talks with him and realizes, oh no, Cleomenes wants to do what Aegis did. He wants to take up the Aginitan project and bring it to completion. And Zanaris doesn't just rebuke him, doesn't just call him crazy. He actually completely cuts off their friendship, stops talking to him. So that's hard. But at this point, we get that same Aratus comes swooping back into this life. The Aratus who was and was expecting Sparta to be an ally. Well, things have changed, and Aratus is significantly more powerful than he was at the early part of his career. Plutarch calls him the most powerful man among the Achaeans, who from the outset wanted to bring all the Peloponnesians into one confederation. And so Aratus is basically a general every other year. Fun fact, it's a non-parallel life, but Plutarch did write a life of Aratus. I will not be including it in this season because it's not a parallel life. And I think I'll do Plutarch's non-parallel lives, which are Aratus, Artaxerxes, Galba, Otho, and Vitellius after in like a 
super extra season seven kind of thing. But Aratus might be placed, if we're going to place him contemporary, contemporary to his fellow Greeks, he is right smack in the midst of this Spartan controversy of kings. Uh, what have we got going on? Aratus wants to bring the Peloponnesians together, specifically against the Macedonian threat. They, they really need to reach something like the scale of what the Macedonians are capable of putting in the field in terms of arms and men. But three places resist. The Lacedaemonians, remember that's the valley around Sparta, so it's whole central southern area of the Peloponnesus. The Eleans, which is the area around Olympia, and the Arcadians, which is just to the east of that. Uh, they all don't want to join Aratus's pan-Peloponnesian project. So Aratus attacks the Arcadians, and Cleomenes marches out against him. The Ephors are still the ones telling Cleomenes where to go and what to do. And he first secures the entrance to the Lacedaemonian or Laconian Valley. So that's nice, but he does more than that. He actually goes into Arcadia, but the Ephors order him back home. And so now we're starting to see political conflict at home, turmoil at home, playing out in political conflict abroad. But Cleomenes is very zealous to meet with Aratus and beat him in battle. So he kind of takes the slow way home through a bunch of territories that will draw the army of Aratus and the Achaean League towards him. And they march out, and he wants to give them battle at a place called Palantium. But Aratus is a little worried about how it might work out, even though Aratus outnumbers him by a lot, by like four to one, it sounds like, 20,000 versus 5,000. So Aratus falls back, and the Spartans kind of treat it like a victory. So then he goes to help Elia, Cleomenes does, and falls on the Achaeans and Achaean army there, forces a battle this time, puts the entire army to flight, and for a while, Aratus, the rumor was going around that Aratus had been killed and was dead. Aratus kind of takes advantage of that, though. We've got two good generals on either side. There's going to be a lot of back and forth between Cleomenes and Aratus, and we'll see who comes in and tips the balance in the favor of Aratus. But Aratus makes the best use of the opportunity and actually marches on Mantinea and captures that city. And for a lot of this, we're going to need a pretty good map of the Peloponnesus. So I'll try to put that in the show notes. But Mantinea is that is famous for that battle that the Thebans won years previously in taking over from the Spartans, in wresting Spartan hegemony. So it's symbolic as well as strategic for Aratus to take and hold this city. There are a couple cities like that. Mantinea will be one and Megalopolis will be another that are both strategic and symbolic in their importance. So the Spartans are disheartened and want Cleomenes to just come back home. So he's got to figure out a way to re-energize his base, so to speak, and make it so that the Spartans can reach that greatness again. Remember, he hasn't even brought in most of his political reforms. All he's trying to do is be an awesome general with less than awesome troops. So one of the things he can do to restore the right Spartan balance is bring back the second king. So he orders Archidamus, who is the rightful king, right, the brother of Aegis, 
technically the former husband of his current wife, but Plutarch doesn't really mention that, uh, to be his rightful co-king. But those who were involved in the murder of Aegis, especially those who had been E4 at the time, right, were afraid that if Archidamus comes back, he's going to avenge his brother's death. So they receive him back into the city, they assist in his restoration, and then they immediately put him to death. This happens so quickly that it's very interesting. To me, this is a strange gap for Plutarch because he just ends with Cleomenes may have been opposed to this. This hopefully referring to putting him to death. Or perhaps he was persuaded by his friends to abandon the hapless man to his murderers. That's an exact parallel to Aegis preventing Leonidas's death. We now have Archidamus, who happens to be Aegis's brother. His death is assured, but mostly by Cleomenes's inaction. And so Plutarch kind of exonerates him in the very last sentence with greater part of the blame attached itself to his murderers since they were thought to have constrained Cleomenes. It's pretty clear that this wasn't done in his ignorance, though. If he had been ignorant of the deed until it had already been done, perhaps he could be completely forgiven, although it does seem weird to invite Archidamus back and then be surprised that people kill him. They obviously, there are a number of people who have a lot of incentive to prevent Archidamus from coming back into power. So at this point, though, we're going to focus now on the fact that he wants to reform the state. So really finish Aegis's project. He starts by bribing the Ephors to send him on an expedition. Weird. We're going to have to connect the dots here. His mom, Cratesiclea, has a great deal of power and influence, just like Aegis's mom had. The Spartans respect their women. She shares in his ambitions, and she has the ways and means. Remember, the women are often the ones that own and deal with the property and its distribution and its management in the day-to-day. Strangely, she seems to marry for the sake of her son. This is how close their relationship is. So to give her son a stepfather who is from among the highest citizens in reputation and influence. Hmm. Okay. Cleomenes comes back with another symbolic victory, though, as he's sent out because he occupies Leuctra, which is a stronghold of Megalopolis and also the site of another battle at which the Spartans were defeated by the Thebans. And so it's symbolic and strategic. Megalopolis is also important not only because it implies that it's a really big city, which it is, but also remember it was founded by the Thebans as a counter to Sparta in the central Peloponnesus area. They said, we're going to found this city, we're going to populate this city, and we're going to keep it as a balance against the Spartans. So Megalopolis tends in general to be anti-Spartan, kind of like Argos, which we'll also see a little later in this life. So we have an interesting battle, or maybe a skirmish that happens here outside of Leuctra. And there's really one major upshot of it that we'll see and come back to, especially in the life of Aratus, but also in Philippemen, who is coming up soon. 
Aratus gives a command not to engage because Cleomenes gets himself into a position that would be difficult to attack. But there's an underling of Aratus, so one of the lesser leaders is Lydiadas or Lydiadas, and he's from Megalopolis, and he does not want to pull back when Aratus prudentially wants to pull back. So he rolls forward and gets caught in just this terrible terrain situation. The place is full of vines and walls and ditches. And so it's very difficult to move any army over such rough terrain, but certainly a phalanx gets to its weakest when there's any sort of gap in the ranks. And so his ranks get thrown into all kinds of disorder. Cleomenes takes advantage and cuts him down to the last man, including obviously Lydiadas. But Lydiadas is given a royal burial. He's buried in purple with a crown on his head and sent back to the gates of Megalopolis. Not because at the time that he died, he was the megalopolitan king, but because he had renounced tyranny after accepting it and gave the citizens their freedom back and attached the city to the Achaean League. So it's pretty noble on everybody's account, right? Lydiadas, Lydiadas had had all the power as a tyrant, had willingly stepped away to encourage freedom, had willingly allied himself with the other Peloponnesians and their common cause against the Macedonians, and then, in his final act, had fought, had died fighting bravely, and thus was treated with the nobility that he deserved, even in death. So now, Cleomenes has a threefold plan that he wants to put into effect. First, he wants to get rid of the E-Force. Second, he wants to actually redistribute the property, not just talk about it this time, okay? We're really going to do it. And then third, he wants to see Sparta in the leadership position of the Peloponnesus. Now, two of those are domestic policy, and one of those is foreign policy. And that foreign policy is really going to get him against his fellow Greeks. Because now there are other Greeks with more power. Aratus obviously is one. The Achaean League also has Philippimen. There are going to be other strong Greeks who are going to resist Cleomenes. And that's not even counting the Macedonians. We shall see. So he takes Megistanus, or Megistanus, depending on how you want to spell that, bringing it out of the Greek, but it means great mind. So he takes his stepfather, the man his mother had married after her first husband died. And he starts telling him, okay, you're going to be my right-hand man. Here's what we're going to do. Get rid of the E-Force, common property, and then we're going to make sure that the Spartans are awesome enough to rule. And the E-Force kind of happens strangely. Again, Cleomenes is willing to break laws and precedents and trample them underfoot because of what he sees as good. I think we can squarely put him in the revolutionary camp when the respect for the rule of law is gone, and only the force of what he sees as good is enforced. But Plutarch tries to give him a way that he appeals to a higher law, the law of the gods. And an ephor falls asleep near the temple of Pasiphae, and has a dream. His dream is that he sees the chairs in which the E-Force sit to conduct their business. 
but four of them disappear. And then a voice comes to him from the temple saying, This is better for Sparta. This ephor then goes to Cleomenes and tells him about the dream. At first, Cleomenes is a little skeptical. Is this guy trying to set me up? What's he trying to say? This is almost too convenient. But then he decides to put his plan into action because this seems like a divine sign. So he actually takes all the citizens who he thinks will be most against what his plan is. And he takes them on a military expedition and basically makes sure that the military expedition is so hard for them that they ask for a break before going home. So he drops them off, essentially, utterly wore them out, one of the translations says. And he drops them off in Arcadia to rest. And then he and his mercenaries, so he does still have some armed troops, they head back to Sparta. So two, two things are made obvious there. One is that the Spartan army is just not what it used to be. Right? A young general living the Spartan lifestyle can take men who were supposedly Spartans and wear them out. Hmm. That's not former Sparta. But the second thing is, it's a strategic divide and conquer, even with your own polis, with your own political unit. Let's make sure they're in Arcadia when most of the political disturbance happens. And that way there's less resistance. This is a little wilier than Aegis was, who tried to do it through mostly legal, mostly above board means. So he rolls back into Sparta, right as the E4s are sitting down to their supper. He sends in a messenger, but the messenger's really just a koi or a distraction. And while the messenger is still delivering his message, basically soldiers roll in behind him and cut down all five E4s, except one E4 looks as if he's dead, regains consciousness, and crawls away to the Temple of Fear which is normally closed, but happens to be open that day. There's a really fun side note, rabbit trail. We won't spend too much time on it, but really fun rabbit trail if you want to dive into the Plutarch, where he mentions the things that the Spartans keep temples to. It's like, yeah, death, laughter, fear. And then he goes on about why they have a temple to fear. And we see a lot of cool synonyms in here. And since we liked so much the flavor of the synonyms huh, of the life of ages, I'll look at a few of the synonyms here and we'll see that he uses Phobos is the normal name for fear. Like that's usually what I guess when I'm reading something in English that has fear at its base. So mephobeste, right, is in the Greek New Testament. That's most often what's used. Be not afraid. That's probably fear in like the most generic sense. Then there's deinos, or it's poetic form deos, which he uses here, which is more like dread. Deimos, it's also called. Those are the two names of the moons of Mars. Phobos and Deimos. And they are also the sons of Ares. And they show up in the Iliad, usually, as his retinue, his entourage, the people that always travel with Ares. So that's, that's fear in that sense. But Plutarch wants to connect fear to reverence, eidos, which is also related to a root for shame. So it's really cool. But reverence is most apt to be felt towards those whom they also 
fear. And this temple to fear is right near where the E4s were. And the E4s were now, as we found out in these two lives, the ones with all the power. So he gets back from the rabbit trail and Cleomenes exiles 80 citizens. He takes the one remaining E4's chair and sits in it. Okay, so basically he killed four of them, but he really replaced the fifth one because he planned to do all public business in this seat. And he calls a general assembly to explain what he has done. Again, like Aegis, who was trying to use Lycurgus to push the laws through, he now uses Lycurgus to explain his seemingly illegal or unconstitutional actions. He says Lycurgus had blended the powers of Senate and kings. And so for a long time, the state was administered in this way and had no need of other officials. Remember, that's the Gerousia, the old men, the Council of Old Men, 28 of them, and the two kings. So 30 men ruled all of Sparta. And when you entered the Gerousia, you entered it for life until you died. But later, when the Mycenaean War proved to be too long, the kings chose out of some of their friends and left them behind to serve the citizens in their stead. So again, two kings was originally, right? A king at home and a king abroad. But if the wars got too intense, you needed both kings abroad. It's the same reason the consuls numbered two in Rome. And it's the same reason for the increased importance of the vice president as America has become more of a world power. America can be in two places at once. If the president needs to stay at home for domestic reasons, the vice president could certainly do a lot more jet setting around for all kinds of foreign policy reasons. So what do we have? We have the E4s are originally guardians is the name of their game. And their job was to be assistance to the king. They were really just courtiers of a certain type, maybe given judicial power like the men Moses chooses, right? But it's any sort of delegation that happens when the kings are just overwhelmed. And there's not enough hours in the day for them to do their job. But as is usual, once a power has been established, it only goes in one direction. It grows, does not shrink, especially since it will attract the kind of men who are ambitious to bring more power to itself. So there's a political lesson there, right? As an American, again, I'll ask what government institutions have ever of their own free will gotten rid of themselves, said that their job does not exist. None. As a matter of fact, all of them have said that their job needs to expand into more and more places. They have more and more work to do. And so they need more and more funding and more and more control over American lives. So be careful to whom you give power because they will not ever give it up and it will always expand. Love that lesson. So his final explanation is that Lycurgus knew that change was hard and he bore witness in his own life that the changing of the constitution was impossible without violence and fear. So remember Lycurgus loses an eye. He's attacked personally and in other ways. So there is a great deal of risk that he was willing to take on in order to change the state to what it needed to be. And so in some ways, 
Cleomenes is looking back to just an earlier precedent than the rule of law for changing law. But I don't know if this century puts up with the change in quite the same way that the Lycurgan centuries had. And so then he makes public the plan. We're going to make all property common. Debtors will be freed from their debts. And foreigners will be examined and rated in order that the strongest of them might be made into Spartan citizens to help preserve the state through arms. So the land, starting with Cleomenes and Megasthenes, is parceled out. He also takes 80 men that he had exiled and parcels out land for them, promising to bring them back when all's quiet. So there is a reunification plan. Everybody that he takes out of the way, he does in a creative way that doesn't always involve just killing the people who are going to disagree with you. So I like that creativity, right? Wearing out the citizens, finding a way to exile 80 men, but not permanently kill them, leaving room for them to be future allies, but also making clear that you shouldn't mess with Cleomenes. I think there's a, there's a great deal of practical wisdom in that, but it doesn't matter what I think, because Plutarch continues that he was able to fill up the citizen body with a new unit of 4,000 men-at-arms that he basically trains in the Macedonian fashion. So we talked about the Sarissa, the longer pike. You need both hands to carry the longer pike. And so you have to carry your shield on a strap that you can put over your shoulder, basically carry it behind you when you're marching, and move it with a little more ease. It's also smaller. So he's willing to adopt and adapt phalanx warfare into something that Lycurgus wouldn't even recognize. So there's a type of conservatism here that recognizes that this new wine can't just be poured into an old wineskin. Even the wineskin has to change a little bit to adapt to new tactics and to handle and become the army that they ought to be. It's too bad he didn't come up with what the Romans came up with because in the next few episodes, we'll see why and how the Roman legion ends up making even the Macedonian phalanx old news. But he now sets in place the agoge, the ancient discipline, the way that Spartan boys become Spartan soldiers. And the man setting it up is none other than that stoic philosopher that we met at the beginning of this life, Sphyrus who was at that time in Sparta, you know, just so he could help out like Stoic philosophers do. And I feel like a Stoic would have a great deal of good things to say about the Agoge. And interestingly, just like we saw in the life of Aegis, a few come to this out of necessity, right? A few are forced over to this plan, but many, Plutarch puts it, most, come with a willing spirit and subject themselves to the old Spartan regime with all of its simplicity. And yet, desiring to give the name of absolute power a less offensive sound, he invites another second king. This time, it's his brother Euclidus. There's a slight precedent break here because it's the only time when Sparta has two kings from the same household. So they're all supposed to be sons of Heracles. Right? Both of the dynasties of the Spartan kings descend from Heracles. But there's the Agiad line and the Europontid line. And that those lines have gotten all mixed up now. And now there's only one line. The Europontid line. So we still have foreign problems. So we've been deciding and figuring out all of these local problems. But 
In the meantime, Cleomenes gets word that Aratus thinks that they're distracted. So to show him just how not distracted they are, Cleomenes gets together a group of Spartans, invades the territory of Megalopolis, and starts wasting the countryside. Then, to show the Achaeans just how at leisure he is, he sets up a theater in the enemy's territory, captures a group of traveling actors, which is great, and forces them, or institutes a prize of 40 minae, and watches as a spectator for the whole day. So basically, he celebrates a feast because these theaters, these theater competitions were originally, or they're most common, and we know the most about them because of how they happened in Athens to celebrate Dionysus. And the festivals would last all day, and you would watch theater all day. But he's not doing this to make a spectacle. He wants to show how much control he has over his affairs. Look at me doing leisurely things. Because Spartans don't normally do this kind of leisure. He says the Spartan army alone at all other times, out of the Greek and Macedonian armies, had no players in attendance, that is actors, no jugglers, no dancing girls, no harpists, but was free from every kind of license, scurrility, and general festivity. There's another list of vices that take down your army. When all your army wants to do is have fun whenever they're bored, they're not going to be good soldiers. What do they do? When their work was over, they do the real Spartan thing. They had recourse to their normal pleasantries, the interchange of Spartan witticisms. Of the great advantage of this sort of amusement, I have told in my life of Lycurgus. See the life of Lycurgus. But it's awesome. Plutarch loved these. He absolutely loved these. He thought a great deal of philosophy was crammed into these laconic sayings because they had the wit to make them salty enough that you would remember them. They were compact, pocket-sized, you could carry them away with you, and thus they also stuck in your memory. So they were a good teaching aid. They were memorable, short, pithy, and fruitful. But speaking of them being a good teaching aid, Cleomenes is one who teaches very similarly to Aegis. He teaches by example. He is a teacher of how you ought to be a king. So this whole paragraph goes and ends with, he alone was considered a descendant of Heracles, which is just the Greek name for Hercules. But he acts with no more pretensions than the common man. And he doesn't have purple and perfumes and keep people waiting, right? You get this image that's really cool of Cleomenes as a real human being. When men came to Cleomenes, who was a real, as well as a titled king, they saw no purple robes or shawls, couches or litters. What they saw, he did not make his, the work of his petitioners grievous and slow by keeping a throng of messengers and doorkeepers or requiring written permission. He came in person, just as he was dressed, to answer the salutations of his visitors, conversed at length with those who needed his services, devoting his time cheerfully and kindly to them. Bam! That's a good leader, the CEO or leader whose door is open, who has time and is not always falling into the trap of feeling busy to feel important. I, and I think almost all of us, admire that. That encourages respect. He keeps a Spartan way of life, except 
when having visitors because he admits that with foreigners, he even gives this advice to a friend, we must not be too strictly Spartan. So he would have wine if there were foreigners. The drinking cups might be made of silver if there were foreigners. But there was no music. He still entertained everyone with that ultimate Spartan ability, conversation, question asking, storytelling, and his discourse was charming. It was witty. People loved talking to him. Left dinner with Cleomenes having learned something. Instead of, again, as opposed to most of the Macedonian overlords who would just ensnare you with gifts and bribes. Cleomenes considered that to be unartful and unjust, basically unskilled. There's a way better way to do it. If they come to you because they like your character and your conversation, then they're not a mercenary. If they come to you only because of the gifts you give at your table, they're not a friend, but a mercy. So at this point, Mantinea, that earlier one that Aratus had taken earlier in the life, they expel their Achaean garrison and ask Cleomenes to come and restore them to their laws and constitution, which he does. But now, at this point, Aratus sees this upstart. Aratus has many more decades of experience than Cleomenes. And he sees this upstart and he's afraid of him. He does not want to know where and how this will end because it could end with Aratus being embarrassed. He has already shied away several times from a potential battle and several other times he's been defeated by Cleomenes. So this has to end. He does not choose to be elected general for another year. And he, as Plutarch puts it, is, does not do well in handing over the helm to another and abandoning the post of authority. But he does at least want to treat with Cleomenes. Then fate intervenes, for not the last time. And he invites Cleomenes to come to settle with the Achaeans and to figure this thing out. So now the Spartans have given themselves the upper hand. Now they may be able to close their grasp on control of the Peloponnesus for the first time in hundreds of years. But like I said, fate intervenes and Cleomenes makes a strenuous march to get there. He ends up, according to Plutarch, maybe drinking water too soon after his strenuous march and a bunch of blood comes up. I think maybe he swallowed it wrong or, you know, and so as his lungs tried to get rid of what what he had swallowed blood came up with it anyway at any rate it's hard on his throat and he loses his voice so he postpones the conference because if you can't talk you can't conference but in the meantime as plutarch points out this ruined the cause of greece because she had no ability to recover from her grievous plight and escape macedonian greed and pride there it is greed and pride because at that point Aratus, who kind of distrusts this Cleomenes, why did he change his mind? I thought we were going to talk. He also didn't want to be eclipsed after 33 years of leadership by this upstart. So what does he do? He took a step which was inappropriate for any Greek to take, Plutarch tells us. For any Greek, but most especially for one that was absolutely unworthy of his career as a soldier and a statesman. He invites Antigonus of Macedon into Greece and filled the Peloponnesus with Macedonians. 
whom he himself had ironically driven out of the Peloponnesus as a young man when he delivered the Acrocorinthus from their power. And so, at the beginning and the end of Eratus' career, we have a complete about-face in his relationship with the Macedonians. First, they are evil and to be kept out of the Peloponnesus for almost his entire career. And then, when a fellow Greek might possibly eclipse him in power, he brings in somebody else. He brings the Macedonians right back in. Plutarch points out, even in Eratus' commentaries, which don't survive to us, but Plutarch had them on his desk in front of him at the time, he says countless evil things about this very Antigonus, the one that he invites in to help him. And so the last rhetorical flourish that Plutarch throws on this is that he cast himself, Eratus cast himself and all of Greece face down before a diadem, a purple robe, Macedonians, and Oriental commands. There it is. Everything that is great about Sparta is the exact opposite of what is great or what the Macedonians are known for. Vices of the Macedonians are the flip side of the coin of the virtues of Spartan. Simplicity, equality, toughness. Right, all of that. This, I think, is an interesting aside because Plutarch wrote a life of Aratus for a descendant of Aratus, and he sees him as a good Greek. So here's what we get. I write this not with any desire to denounce Aratus, for in many ways he was a true Greek and a great one. But I write it out of a pity for the weakness of human nature, which even in characters so notably disposed towards excellence, cannot produce a nobility that is free from blame. And I feel like as political tempers fade, and we start to see things in a historical perspective, we get the ability to see our political enemies more as humans who had a character, some that had some aspects that were admirable, and then had a character or maybe made some decisions that were not admirable at all. I'm trying to read the lives of Plutarch and see and find heroes in my own country, and history. And I've always found that to be the hardest part, is that anybody who lived within living memory is often much more politically maligned. Not because of their character, not because of who they were, but because of political decisions that they had made which caused disaster. At least according to the authors, as you read them. So just trying to get to cut through that noise and find the signal, so to speak, of the truth of these people's lives. And granted, I think what I find disgusting about most politicians in the 20th century is just the amount of things that they were willing to do for ambition kind of takes away most of my respect for what they ended up doing once they got to power. So I struggle with that with Plutarch's lives as well. Ambition is really a two-edged sword. And at its highest, wanting to be the leader is often a sign that you shouldn't be, at least in politics. Seems like other forms of leadership can still attract good and even great characters, but political leadership, it's been very, very difficult to find good men going back for a long time. So on that super uplifting note, let's look back at the Achaeans. They had been dissatisfied with Aratus for a long time, and now they see an alternative. 
Cleomenes. So those of them that weren't mad at him for his poor leadership before, many, many more become enraged when they hear that he has invited the Macedonians into the Peloponnesus. So Cleomenes now got a bunch more allies in the Peloponnesus and it almost, or at least temporarily, reverses things and gives Cleomenes a whole prevailing wind that's going in the direction of anti-Macedonian sentiment. So he's able to actually take Argos with this sentiment. And this is the same Argos, by the way, in which Pyrrhus was slain, right? Pyrrhus was killed, the roof tile and the ugly face, remembering the guy who cut his head off. Anyway, listen to the life of Pyrrhus if you forgot that. But this is a very difficult city to take. And he takes it from the high ground down, which is really cool. There's a the, the citadel of Argos is called the Aspis or the Aspida which is just Greek for shield. And so he kind of gets under the shield, over the shield. I don't know what the metaphor should be. And is able to go from the high ground down and take the walls that way. He does this so quickly that he earns even more admirers. And those who had mocked him before, Plutarch tells us, they mocked him as an imitator of Solon and Lycurgus, a cheap imitation of those guys who actually knew what they were doing with their equalization of property and abolition of debts. But now, now they became convinced that this imitation had caused a real social change. We could even maybe even say a psychic, a soul change in the Spartans themselves. And Plutarch agrees. He says they, they, the Spartans, gave abundant proof of their valor and obedience to authority by recovering the leadership of Greece for Sparta and making all the Peloponnesus their own again. So Cleomenes takes Argos. Aratus is at Corinth and he's trying to figure out what to do. And he flees away to Sicyon, that is northwest, and Argos is southwest, and they're both in the Peloponnesus proper. Again, we'll have a good map in the show notes. But Cleomenes now keeps marching up from his peninsula towards Corinth because Corinth is going to be the place where he's going to want to meet the Macedonians and not let them in. That's the gateway via land into the Peloponnesus. And so if he's able to get the Acrocorinth, which is the really, really tall, there's, there's the remains of a Venetian fortress up there, really tall mountain that overshadows Corinth, that basically if you, if you have that mountain, at least before the invention of flight, you can control who goes into and who comes out of the Peloponnesus. But Aratus doesn't want to play with Cleomenes. He doesn't want to work with Cleomenes. He doesn't want to give Cleomenes any access to Corinth. So Cleomenes has no choice but to go northwest and ravage Sicyon. And the Corinthians vote him the gift of Aratus's property. However, there's a giant Macedonian army bearing down on the Peloponnesus now. And so Cleomenes is going to fortify two positions. He can't quite get into the Acro Corinth, so he's going to fortify a position of hills directly southeast of Corinth, close to Argos and a lot of those places he had just taken over, Epidaurus, Troizen, and Hermione. But he wants to wear the Macedonians out by a war of posts and positions, as Plutarch puts it, rather than engage in formal battle with their disciplined phalanx. Oh, hey, We have Fabian tactics 20 years before on a different peninsula. Yeah, 
Why don't we call them Cleomenian, Cleomenian tactics? Wow, I really struggled with that. Well, there's a lot of reasons why, right? Fabius does it consistently and against an even harder enemy. And Cleomenes has a lot of tactics. He's only trying these ones this time. So Fabian tactics better sum up the man as a shield of the Romans. Antigonus tries a number of ways to get around Cleomenes, all of which are going to be far more expensive than just marching your army through the pass that you planned to march them. So expensive in terms of time and money. And so Cleomenes is smart. Time is on his side if he can wait it out. So first he tries to sneak through on the northern side of Corinth to get, because that's closer to Sicyon, uh, to get up to Sicyon and, and meet up with Aratus. That doesn't work. Cleomenes comes out of his fortified position and, and finds him. Then he's going to try to go to the opposite side of the Bay of Corinth and sail across in boats, but that that's just going to require so much preparation. But something happens in Antigonus's favor. The Argives revolt at that point. And Cleomenes doesn't have a lot of troops to spare, but he sends his stepfather, Megistinus, and he angrily orders him to go to Argos and figure it out, Argos, and figure it out because Megistinus is the one who had given him assurances that, ah, oh, yeah, the Argives won't revolt. We're, we're all good now, right? We conquered Argos and it's good. But then Megistinus is spl- slain in battle after arriving before Argos. So that's rough. And the garrison there feels outnumbered. They're sending messages to Cleomenes. Hey, come help us. And now if Argos folds, he's surrounded. He has enemies behind him and enemies in front of him. And more importantly, he has enemies between him and home, which is Sparta. There's really no way he's going to be able to go way around Argos to get back to Sparta if you look at a map for where he is. So they would be able to at least ravage Laconian territory and maybe even lay siege to Sparta, where, by the way, he had not left much of the army. This is a famous Spartan move, right? When a, somebody asked in like Kyrgyz's day, why don't the Spartans have walls or where are the Spartans' walls? The laconic Spartan just pointed to his spear. Ah, those are Spartan walls. I see. So he has to fall back from his position near Corinth, and Antigonus immediately takes Corinth and sets up a garrison there. So that's rough. Here is the summary that Plutarch gives us of that whole back and forth between Aratus and Antigonus and all of the power that the Spartans had gotten over the Peloponnesus and all of it crumbling right before his eyes. Plutarch says he had made the greatest possible conquests in the briefest possible time and had come within a little of making himself master of all Peloponnesus by a single march through it, but had quickly lost everything again. For some of his allies left him at once, and others, after a little while, handed their cities over to Antigonus. So, that's first major setback. He was leading his army home, and he gets even worse news. His wife has died. Of course... Plutarch tells us he was smitten with grief as was natural for a young man who had lost a most beautiful and most sensible wife. But he did not allow his suffering to shame or betray the loftiness of his thought or the greatness of his spirit. He maintained his usual way of dressing, speaking, and carrying himself. He gave the normal orders to his captains. 
So he doesn't go out of his mind with grief. But he's also not super stoic about it. (laughs) And so Plutarch makes him a little more balanced here than a stoic would be. A stoic tries to have apatheia, no passion, no feeling, no anything. And Plutarch thinks that that is the craziest thing about stoicism because to be ataraxia or apatheia, which means to be undisturbable or undisturbed and unpassionate, almost unsuffering, right? It's okay to suffer when suffering things are happening to you. When things that we call suffering, patheia, pathetic, are happening to you, it's okay to suffer. It's not okay to stop doing your duty because you are suffering. That is the platonic answer to the stoic extreme of apatheia and ataraxia. Obviously, I'm a fan. You can make your own choices, dear listener. Ptolemy, though, now gets involved. The king of Egypt, this is Ptolemy III, and he promises aid and assistance in exchange for Cleomenes' mother and children as hostages. He obviously can't ask for the man's wife anymore. So this is double extra bad news. Maybe it's a second scoop of bad news in the bad news bowl. And he's actually unwilling to even broach the topic with his mom. How do you explain to your mom? Like, hey, mom, we need to uh, not sell you into slavery so much as make you a hostage to a foreign power that's hundreds of miles away. They'll kill you if I do anything annoying and I probably won't ever see you again. Does this sound like a cool idea, mom? Yeah, sorry, you thought I was going to Talk about what you wanted for your birthday. Yeah, my bad. Oops. However, Cleomenes' mom is way cooler than you think she is. And when she finds out about the matter, because Cleomenes finally brings it up, typical mom, she probably saw right through him and was like, I've seen that you've wanted to talk to me about something for two weeks. What is it, son? At any rate, he brings it up and she says, okay, put me on a ship. Send this frail body wherever you think it'll be of most use to Sparta. Yes, most use to Sparta. It's interesting because when Aegis's mom died, her final words were, I hope this is what's best for Sparta. Cool. That's awesome. There is that public sentiment. My privately being your mother is not nearly as important to your publicly being king and therefore what it is that I have to do because you are the king. What is good for Sparta? So they go into a, they, they go down to Tanaris, right? If you look at Sparta on a map, it's totally landlocked. There's not a lot of harbors near it, but they usually, when they need to use harbors, they go straight down the middle of the Peloponnesus to that middle promontory. And Tanaris is the closest one. We'll see that get used again. And Kratesikleia, her name, his mother's name, she takes him aside into the temple of Poseidon and there she weeps, kisses him, embraces him, all of those, honestly private affections that you would be able to show the anguish and deep trouble that she's experiencing. But she then tells him. So it wasn't just the stoicism of his youth. It was this, his mother, who taught him how to handle grief. She says, when we go out of this temple, let no one see us weeping or doing anything unworthy of Sparta. For this lies in our power. But as for the issues of fortune, we shall have what the deity may grant. That's cool. And a great perspective on life. Be in control of what you're in control of. Don't be apatheia, but also don't be out of control with your patheia, right? Don't be all pathetic all over everybody, right? Your passions and appetites have a place and a time in which they can be used 
indulged, guided. And those always, or most of the time, the vast majority of the time, lie within our power. So use those. And don't worry about the things outside of your control, which you can just call fate, fortune, providence, whatever you're going to call it, depending on your particular philosophy or religion. So she goes. And even after she gets to Egypt, and she starts to see that the political situation might be souring because Antigonus also has men negotiating there in Egypt. So both sides of this are there, but Antigonus didn't send any hostages. She sends him a letter and says, do whatever you need to do for Sparta and do not worry about what Ptolemy will do to me or your son. So at this point, he turns his attention to regaining some sort of influence or control in the Peloponnesus. He's now been drawn back down essentially into the little valley surrounding Sparta, Laconia. So he sets a bunch of helots free. He arms 2,000 of them in the Macedonian fashion and hopefully trains them. I wonder how long that would take, right? You can't just give the weapons to people, but Megalopolis is now his strategic and symbolic goal. He wants to snatch it away and he sends his friend Panteus in with two divisions of Spartans, telling him to take a portion of the wall. He not only finds a portion of the wall that he can get over, but it's totally unprotected. So he starts tearing down the wall and making this big hole for Cleomenes and his men to come in. And they join him, and he's inside the city pretty much before the megal- all the mega- megalopolitans are even aware of it. But a couple things happen that work out for the worse for him. One is... He didn't get nearly as much power from this because I guess they came into a section of the city that was not highly inhabited and some people band together to resist the Spartan army in what essentially becomes a street fight. See the life of Pyrrhus for how horribly that works out for people. But the biggest thing is that they're not able to take prisoners or sack it because there were only about a thousand people left. The rest had succeeded in escaping with their wives and children to Messini. So a few high-ranking megalopolitans are captured and brought to Cleomenes. And they tell Cleomenes, it's in your power to do something great. And he thinks, uh, okay. So what do you mean? And he says, I advise you for your own sake, in your own best interest, not to destroy this city but to give it back and to earn the trust, alliance, and friendship of so large a people by being their native city's preserver. And Cleomenes says, hmm, it's difficult to believe that all of this will come of this, but I'll always choose what what makes for good repute rather than what brings gain. Hmm, and one wonders. That's cool. But it is still that it's never, that's the more virtuous, or he doesn't say this time, that's the more virtuous action. He chooses what makes for good repute. Oh, there's that love of glory from way back in the beginning. He just wants that love of glory. Maybe not the virtues themselves, but that's a question more perhaps for Tiberius and Gaius Gracchus when we get to them. And with these words, he sent the two men off, offering the city back to the megalopolitans, untouched as long as they renounced the Achaean cause and its alliance implied with Macedonia. But it is another Greek, a Greek who will be called the last of the Greeks and who will be our next life, Philippemon, who stands up as a young man and resists Cleomenes' offer, saying that he will not allow the Megalopolitans to break their pledges to the Achaeans. 
He denounces Cleomenes, and that is one of his first forays into politics. So Cleomenes now becomes so embittered by this rejection. Who is this little upstart? I thought Cleomenes was the upstart. How many upstarts do we have in this life? Is we even keeping track? He's so incensed and annoyed that he decides to plunder the city. He sends its cool stuff off, like its statues and its pictures back to Sparta, and completely demolishes the largest portion of the city before marching home. And at this point, Aratus is at a meeting of the Achaean assembly, the assembled army, and he gets up on the stage, the bima, they call it, the mounted platform from which speakers spake, and he weeps, probably for several minutes. Once three and a half awkward pauses have gone by, the audience starts demanding that he talk, and he tells them, he delivers the news, Megalopolis has been destroyed by Cleomenes. Antigonus even tries to give aid at this point, but because it's winter, he has stationed his troops at different poles so that they can be supported through the winter. It's probably very difficult to winter in the Peloponnesus with a large force because you're basically relying on everybody else's stored food and paying them to give it up. But nobody has tons of extra food in one given city. They want to be able to feed their own people first. So here, Cleomenes takes advantage of this winter situation and tries to get Antigonus to come out and fight him. He starts ravaging the area of Argos where he knows Antigonus is staying with a small force and he thinks if he can rout Antigonus's small force, it'll at least be a moral victory, a symbolic victory of some kind, rather than just a skirmish that nobody pays attention to. But Plutarch gives credit where it is due and says Antigonus, as was becoming for a prudent general, considered it a disgrace only to take unreasonable risks and throw away his security rather than in being abused by the outside rabble. He would not go forth from the city and stood by his previous plan. So Cleomenes can waste the land, but he gets nothing for it in the end. When Antigonus marches away, Cleomenes tries to take Argos back. That would be a huge victory. It would be a way of consolidating his power where he once had it. But Antigonus immediately turns around, occupies the hills around him, and that's where we start to realize that Cleomenes just doesn't have the army of the right size to defeat Antigonus. So he marches around some of the cities where he knows the main Macedonian force isn't and tries to make a show of power, but it becomes really clear that he drew his resources from a single city and yet waged war against the Macedonian power. And this is where we get a time versus money comparison, similar to what he had in Corinth, where time was on his side, but money was not. And money he will never have. And even Aegis admitted earlier, right? I will out-virtue them, even when I can't out-buy them or outbid them. But here, Plutarch has an interesting observation, a, a slew of interesting observations in a row, actually, about war, time, and money. He said, he who first declared that money is the sinews of all affairs would seem to have spoken with special reference to the affairs of war. And he ends with a former Spartan king saying, when he was not allowed to increase the amount that the allies had to pay to keep up the war during the Peloponnesian War, he said, war has no fixed rations. Appetite of war is voracious. So Antigonus, making war with these large resources, was able to wear out Cleomenes, 
who could only with difficulty pay for his mercenaries and keep his citizen soldiers in the field. But the time, the time and the timing can still be on Cleomenes' side because the Macedonians are trying at this very moment to summon Antigonus home. Their letters, which are on their way to him, tell of invading Illyrian barbarians who are wreaking havoc on Macedonia and the heartland of his empire. He can't risk his crown by trying to take the Peloponnesus. Plutarch interjects again, Fortune, though, who decides the most important affairs by a narrow margin, favored Antigonus with so slight a preponderance in the scale of opportunity and power that no sooner had the Battle of Salassia been fought, where Cleomenes lost both his army and his city, than the messengers summoning Antigonus arrived. Oof. And that's going to be the important battle, and the timing is going to be Salassia. His lack of resources forced him, Polybius tells us, and Plutarch tells us, that Polybius tells us, to stake the whole issue on a battle where he was still outnumbered by 10,000. Some say, according to Plutarch, that he was overwhelmed by the superior numbers and the superior training of the heavy-armed phalanx. Others say that there may have been trickery wherein his brother's phalanx was able to be encircled. And he saw his brother, his co-king, Euclidus, get cut down with his entire phalanx. Many of his mercenaries fell as well, we are told, and all the Spartans, who used to be 6,000 in number going into the battle, of the 6,000, only 200 survive. And so, Cleomenes comes back to the city, the city without walls, the city that cannot handle another defense, because in its defense, all of the men have already died. And rather than resting, he puts his forearm on a pillar and rests his head for a while and then sets out for the closest harbor to Sparta. And he flees to Egypt. But in the meantime, Antigonus both arrives in the city without resistance, takes it over, and treats it relatively humanely, especially compared to other conquerors of Sparta. He supposedly restores her laws and constitutions. That probably means to a pre-Cleomenian and Aegis plan. Sacrificed to the gods and went away on the third day, because it was on that day that he discovered that barbarians had invaded Macedonia. We finish up Antigonus's story, though, because it's interesting to Plutarch, and he kind of wants to tie this, tie this up in a bow. Antigonus goes back north, wins a great victory against the barbarians, and died gloriously, not in battle, but having celebrated the battle with a shout he raised on the field of battle. Here's how he says it. He shouted for joy, oh, happy day, and then brought up a great quantity of blood, fell into a high fever, and died. So much for Antigonus. But now Cleomenes is a king without a polis going into flight and unaware that his main enemy not only ran away, but died shortly thereafter. So there is almost zero Macedonian threat staring him in the face, but he doesn't know it. A friend, while he's running away, tries to convince him to turn around and go back. Instead of acting like a captive, he should act like a king and not act like a runaway. But here's Cleomenes' response. Better men than we have given in to their enemies before this, having been betrayed by fortune or overwhelmed by numbers. But he who is in the face of toils and hardships, or of the judgment of men, gives up the fight 
and is vanquished by his own weakness. For a self-inflicted death ought to be not flight from action, but an action in itself. For it is shameful to die as well as to live for oneself alone. So that's interesting because we know that the ancients were not anti-suicide. A lot of them saw suicide as a more noble option over other options like enslavement, control of another, someone else having control over your whole life. But this is an argument that narrows the field for killing yourself for suicide, not just to escape. As a matter of fact, if it's only for escape and only for yourself, it's still ignoble, which is it's good, good to acknowledge, because he says it should be an action in itself, not flight from action. His friend's response to this is to go off onto the beach as soon as possible and to kill himself. So his friend just wanted escape. What Cleomenes wants is action and good action if he can. He does not want to be so overwhelmed by fortune or hardship or difficulty that he wants to escape it through death. He makes a pretty good impression. He lands in Egypt, makes a pretty good impression with Ptolemy the first time. But as Ptolemy sees his Spartan virtues, he actually starts to admire him deeply and has a great respect for him and is a little sad that he had backed the Antigonus horse over the Cleomenes horse, especially considering that Antigonus was pretty famous for his excessive drinking and eating. He's kind of famous for it. So just excess in general. But this Ptolemy promises Cleomenes, hey, I'll give you ships. I'll send you back to Greece and I can restore you to the kingdom, to your kingdom. In the meantime, here's an annual pension of 24 talents. That's a lot. But Ptolemy III dies before he's able to fulfill the rest of his promise. So Cleomenes has some money but no real plan to get back to Sparta. And Ptolemy IV, Philopater, not Ptolemy III, Euergetes, right? They both have nicknames, which we talked about in the life of Coriolanus. Uh, Those nicknames mean good doer or doer of good deeds. So Euergetes, Ptolemy III, he was great. Ptolemy IV mm, doesn't come off looking so good in this life basically known for wanting wine, women, and song more than running an empire. So nonetheless, though, Cleomenes at first seemed to be of some use because this party boy pharaoh slash emperor of Egypt didn't trust his brother. And a lot of the mercenaries in the Egyptian army were Peloponnesians, several thousand of them, which means they all respect and know who Cleomenes is. Many of them would probably know Cleomenes personally. So Ptolemy IV thinks keeping Cleomenes close means keeping a large contingent of the mercenaries from going over to a brother who might try to overthrow Ptolemy IV. But the ships and the army that were promised by Ptolemy III, yeah, those don't materialize. He doesn't have time for such things. But he does find out finally that Antigonus is dead and that the Achaeans are again at war with the Aetolians, normal stuff that we're used to. But he demands to be sent away with his friends only. Just, just send me back. I don't need the ships. I don't need the army. We'll figure it out. But he's not. And the other courtiers, the other people who surround the court of Ptolemy IV, they want Cleomenes to just 
give in to all this pleasure and excess and fun. He doesn't. He's annoyed. He cannot stand this life of ease. And there's that key word again, key vice, luxury. So somebody that Cleomenes owes money to arrives in Alexandria. Uh-oh. This man had sold to Cleomenes an estate. But Cleomenes had bought this estate at a time when he had money and then had very quickly lost it and was unable to pay him. So Nicagoras, the name of this Greek, he comes, greets him in a friendly way and says, hey, I've got some horses to sell to the king. Cleomenes also greets him in a friendly way and makes a joke like, I don't, I don't think the, this king's interested in war horses. Sorry. So a few days later, Nicagoras comes and says, hey, you're right. He wasn't really interested in the horses, but I'm really in need of money. And do you remember that money you owe me? And Cleomenes declares he's got nothing left of the monies that had been given him. So it sounds like whatever Ptolemy III had given him, he had lived on. And Ptolemy IV was less forthcoming with the cash. So at this point, once somebody in Ptolemy's court who doesn't like Cleomenes convinces Nicagoras to write a letter accusing Cleomenes of planning to use ships and soldiers not to go back to Sparta and to help there, but to attack Ptolemy and seize Cyrene, that famous North African city that is currently under the control of the Ptolemies and was a former Greek colony. So Nicagoras writes the letter and then sails away, often in the sunset, not worrying about what will be the results of this. The results are really that Cleomenes is now put under house arrest. It's a nice house, but it's house arrest. He can't leave. He can't leave the house. And even a lot of Cleomenes' friends turn on him. At one point, he hears a friend, who is also a friend of King Ptolemy, leaving and telling the guards that they were careless in their watch of this great wild beast that they had under their care. You're like, wow. Cleomenes heard himself called a great wild beast by his own supposed friend. So he makes a strange plan and what seems like a desperate attempt to me, but I'll try to describe it as well as possible. He gets his friends together and he sets it up so that when Ptolemy goes to visit Canopus, which is another city on the Nile, in the Nile River Delta, he makes it look like that Ptolemy has given orders to set him free. So when Ptolemy frees a prisoner, there's usually a banquet and a lot of gifts. And basically his friends fake it so that it looks like he's being set free by orders of the king. The guards are taken in. They get free food and free wine. So maybe it wasn't that hard to convince them. And Cleomenes rolls out into Alexandria with a group of 13 or 14 armed men including one who is partially lame. So he roams up and down the city trying to make a revolution happen, right? A, a revolution against what? I'm not sure. I guess Ptolemy IV's wanton ways, but whatever, we've had wanton Macedonian kings before. As long as government still runs underneath them, who cares what the figurehead leader kind of does, right? And he turns and says, no wonder that women rule over these men who run away from their freedom, which is funny because the Spartans are known for their relationship with their women, but I guess it's the women who are encouraging them to come back with your shield or on it or go fight, win kind of thing. And yeah, it's funny in a Spartan life in particular. But 
they decide that they can't they can't get a revolution they can't break out of alexandria they're certainly not going to be able to like steal a ship with just 13 of them and get out and they you know he wouldn't want to leave his mother and children behind so they all decide to kill themselves including one of the men who had helped him attack megalopolis is the last man to kill himself over cleomenes's body because his job was to make sure that those who had killed themselves were actually all dead what a way to go the tragedy continues at the end of this life as the elder of the two boys the elder of his two sons tries to kill himself jumps off the building and does not die but is greatly injured and then ptolemy gives orders that cleomenes should be hanged in public view and his children mother and the women should all be killed his mother is killed she specifically requests that the children not be killed in front of her all the children are killed in front of her and then she's killed so the tragedy just continues she does die with a nobility that everyone respects all the way to the end she has a watchful care over her body which she had set over it in life oh the wife of Panteus is also eulogized here in the moments of her death and plutarch brings it home with the word tragedy right sparta bringing her women's tragedy into emulous competition with that of her men this is the tragedy of the end of sparta no sparta will come back but it did show the world that individual persons in the last extremity even virtue cannot be outraged by fortune so it ends with this image where cleomenes has a snake around his head even though his body is dead and hanging from a tree and Ptolemy gets freaked out and thinks it's an omen. He's superstitious. Some of the Alexandrians start to worship him. And then finally, some people explain, some of the wise men explain, no, no, no. Human bodies, as they decay, when their marrow collects and coagulates, it produces serpents. And this is why heroes have always been associated with serpents. So we could say Cleomenes, the last true spartan king the last true spartan hero the last true spartan serpent we'll be back with more next month but in the meantime i'll leave you to open plutarch's lives and let his lives influence yours <laughs>